This episode is sponsored by Silverback Chaps. Silverback Chaps, they've got your back. Have you ever been curious about Silverbacks, but just don't know where to start? Check out the website and use the code LOCKDOWNPC, that's LOCKDOWNPC, and get 10% off your first order. And this is across the whole range from chaps to caps, hats, tees, hoodies, and jackets, all designed for the working farrier by farriers. Farriers, we maybe haven't picked up on those early signs. The contributing factor to winning or losing, you know. And it was a 24, 48 hour temporary fixing. You are you are testing your ability to shoot that horse to its and, and this question very much kind of like sits underneath that. So, um, so yeah, so then on top because, um, you know, once I did that, uh, there are so many benefits to doing it that I could not understand why I would. Welcome to the Lockdown Farriers podcast, the Farry learning resource where we deliver the skills, knowledge and behaviours for today's modern professional working farrier. Welcome to the first podcast of 2024. 2023 was a bit sparse with the old podcast. I do apologize. Been a very busy year. Uh, As I alluded to last year, you know, I had a lot going on. Uh, Probably still got a lot going on this year. But my New Year's resolution is to try and do at least one episode of Fortnite. Got a big list of people I want to get. Not saying I'm going to get all of them, but I'm going to try my best. Obviously, to get the um, content required some of these are going to be um done over zoom or certainly recorded online this is this first one is obviously an example of this you know don't make enough money for this to get on a plane and go all the way to australia but um that's gonna obviously mean that we can get more content actually as opposed to going to doing face-to-face so we'll try and do some face-to-face and i will try and get a lot of interviews at different events to go to as well we are primarily going to stick to farrier education as we have done in the past, but we will be doing some other general chit chat and talk about other subjects closely related to farrier itself. So this first episode, I'm talking to my good friend all the way from Australia, Dean Lewis. Dean obviously grew up in a harness racing background. He's obviously worked, grew up around those horses. He's worked with those horses, competed with those horses, and he still continues to shoe those horses. Harness racing is... It's a subject I know nothing about, so this was much a voyage of discovery as it is for some of you. Obviously, there's lots of different disciplines in the equine world. We tend to know what we know and do what we do, but there are lots of crossovers and we can learn something from each other. So, obviously, tonight we're going to talk about harness racing. It's a subject I know 
nothing about whatsoever. The only thing I know about harness racing is what I saw in your forge a couple of years ago when I was over staying with you. Um, could you give us a brief sort of like history into your experience in and around harness racing before we get onto the Farry part, if you like? All right, so uh, my family, well, I was born into a harness racing family. My grandfather and grandmother were, were sort of more. My grandmother was actually a bit of a, a um, Thorwart in the industry because she was, at the time, women weren't allowed to actually train or drive harness horses at the time. Something that we take for granted today. Um, but, yeah, she was one of the first to instigate women driving against men she never got around to doing it herself because she passed away but uh, my grandfather every he was quite famous and won one of our big races over here called inter dominion um in 1970 so i mean i was born into a harness racing family and i lived with them we always lived with them on the same farm and um spent my life in and around harness horses from a very well from day dot really and it was basically second nature and um in a way i was well i was very lucky because i was being taught things at a young age that i took for granted you know horsemanship and what to look for and what not to look for i had no idea i was learning those things until i got older um you know all the things that you'd see and things that you'd experience with horses that became second nature so i was lucky in that respect so um yeah, and it sort of evolved from there. So when I was 14, all I wanted to do was was drive harness horses. And my grandfather, um, you couldn't drive till you were 16, but he wouldn't let me drive a horse in a race or a trial until I could chew one. So I don't know whether that was punishment or what it was, but, it, um, you know, I had to learn to take shoes off and put shoes on and you had to learn to do everything and, um, his saying was that you could never tell a bloke how to do a job if you couldn't do it yourself. And uh, so that's how I learned basically to start shoeing horses. And I, I was lucky enough that um, because of his his prominence in the industry, we used to get a lot of um, overseas and interstate quite prominent trainers come and stay with us to race and campaign in Melbourne. And uh, one chap that... Uh, Set me on the right track with chewing horses with a guy called Jim Hurley from South Australia. Now, Jim was a unbelievable horseman, and um, I had no idea much about making shoes or anything like that. Never been taught any that sort of thing, and and uh, so I I'd seen all these things in book, no internet them those, and uh, I I made a I got an old plough disc because we lived we had a farm a big farm quite a big property. I got an old plough disc and uh, got my mother's old vacuum cleaner and put it in reverse and tried to, didn't have any idea about coke and all that, so I got a bit of charcoal and started trying to make a forge. I was a hell of a lot of smoke coming out of the stables one day and Jim walked in and said, oh, you're not doing that the right way. So he sort of set me on the right track about how to how to do all that sort of thing, made me a little hammer and, and um, that's how I started basically, so... So obviously, obviously, harness racing kind of led into your career in Farry. But I mean, did you? I mean, 
that was quite an early age. But did you ever go on to race or actually take part in it? Yeah, I um, that's how I met my wife. I um, I trained and drove. Well, actually, I I was a I worked for a guy called Graham Lang, um, probably one of the best trainers at the time. Uh, Lang family are quite famous in harness racing in Australia, and um, there I worked for Graham Lang and uh, ended up training and driving horses when I was working for Graham's, where I met my wife Donna, and um, once. When we got married, we started training horses ourselves. And uh, Donna comes from a harness racing background as well. Her sister's world champion driver. Her father's one of the most prominent trainers in Australia, um, Peter Manning. And, uh, yeah, so Donna and I trained in uh, in partnership, trained and drove. So she drove horses as well. And I think I drove about 200 or so winners. Um, but all the time... All the time to subsidise it, Daniel. I was, I was always. It wasn't, wasn't. There's not a great deal of money in it. We were in a better situation in those days, but um, it was at the twilight of harness racing. I'd say the boom years were probably the 60s and 70s and 80s, but um, deteriorated a bit since then. But I always shod, even if we were training 10 or 15 horses. I uh, we trained the horses in the morning, and I'd shoe horses in the afternoon to subsidise it so I always um, always shot horses and and like I said pretty much self self-taught at that point I'd never done a trade I suppose in a way I'd, I'd done more than a trade because I was working with so many different guys and learning so much but um, Carlo Dwyer from the famous Dwyer Horseshoes um, I was lucky that uh, my grandfather sent me over one day to watch Carl Shaw horse, a very good horse that we had, had quarter cracks, and I was only young at the time. And I watched Carl do this horse and make a mushroom shoe for him and, and what he'd done, and I, I was just in awe of the man, and I thought, gee, one day I want to be like that. So years later, Carl's always helped me through my career. And, um, and again, you know, lucky that through my grandfather's connection, I could sort of rub shoulders with guys like that and get help by guys like that, you know. And uh, Carl said to me, he said one day, he said, oh, you know, it's all good about shoeing horses. You shoe horses are right, but you really need to get qualified. And I had not much idea about qualification. At the time, the industry was starting to turn, um, you know, into the qualification thing. And with the thoroughbred racing in Australia, which I was starting to shoe a few thoroughbreds, um, there was a movement to have what we call a level three or had had what we called a level three and um guys were becoming qualified so carl convinced me to go along and do that and i was lucky through carl's connection to talk to an english farrier called colin smith uh i'm not sure whether you're familiar with i know you've met colin but i think his father was his name was colin smith too correct me if i'm wrong um, yeah that's right i think they'll I think they're from Yorkshire, if that's that's correct. But um, uh, yeah, Colin was a trade school teacher here, and so I went and done some shoemaking courses and and um, tool making courses with Colin. He's a brilliant, brilliant um, tool maker and a very good shoemaker too. And uh, so I done my level three, and that sort of started me off on a on a journey to um, you know 
to be become qualified, and I sort of had a bit of a um, you know, inkling for it ever since to get as many qualifications as I could. So that's where it all led to, really. So could you? I mean, again, the whole idea of this conversation is. Is, I mean, like myself, there's probably many out there, certainly in this country, who don't quite understand the fundamentals behind what harness racing is. So, I mean, there's a lot to it. Uh, could you just give us a brief overview of what harness racing actually is? Well, I suppose the best way to probably describe it, well, everybody, most people that could relate to seeing a movie Ben-Hur, obviously. And uh, that's sort of that's where it all started from. Really, was um, you know 1500 BC. That's where it all started, and, and it was it was just basically um, it was it really was the sport of kings. That's what that's how it started. It was the Assyrian kings were the ones that started it, the ones with plenty of money, and, and it it evolved to sort of the time around Augustus, and basically. They were racing in chariots, and the horses obviously weren't gated. They were galloping, and, um, racing in chariots, and it, they'd race from morning to night, sometimes 100 races a day, and, and that's how it started, really. And uh, it's evolved worldwide. Um, I think there's too many places in the world that haven't at some point had some point of some type of harness racing, but... Um, I don't know if that explains it very well, but the history of uh, the history of harness racing, like I said, it dates back a long way, and and um, it's similar, but there's variations in it around the world. So I mean, history-wise, Europe in in the in the continent, they basically they basically just have trotters there. So we we'll, we can all relate to the gate as far as we all relate to the gate of a trot. And so there's only trotters in Europe. There's no paces in Europe. Um, in England, there's paces. So you can you basically, with harness racing, break it up into three three specific breeds. So there's what we call, a, or what we describe or, or know as the North American standard breed, um, which are in Australia and England and New Zealand, I think Brazil, different places like that, uh, paces and trotters. Um, then you have the French bred trotter, basically, is one of the breeds that have resisted interbreeding with the, a North American standard bred until recent times. And um, the only other breed that's really resisted or, or, or strain that's really resisted interbreeding is the all-of trotter in, um, in Russia. So... So you can really sort of, if you get specific, put it in that perspective, those three main breeds. So the North American standard bred is the one that most of us relate to as being um, as being a paces and trotters. Yeah, so if that what is the Well, yeah. So what is the difference between a trotter and a pacer? What's the difference? Well, a pace is a lateral gait, so... Um, two legs on each side go together, and they have hobbles on them. So they, when I when I say hobbles, it's 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 harness that um, enables them to pace and keep gait, keep stride. 
Um, whereas a trotter, it's a diagonal. It's a diagonal goat, obviously. So okay. Um, really, if you look at trotters and from a farriery point of view, you could nearly break trotting down into say that there's three gates of a trot, really. Um, and I mean that's getting. It might be getting complicated for some people, but but you you really have a an inline trotter um, whose back legs trot in line with the front front legs, and it breaks over and folds up the front of its um, hind cannonbone. Um, and then there's a uh, outside go to trotter who spreads quite wide behind and trots outside his front feet, and his front feet come inside. Um, his back legs, and the only other really only other type of trotter that is what we refer to as a dog trotter who will trot inside with one and outside with the other. Now those horses are usually cause you more trouble than they're worth. Um, they have more 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 common than not got some type of um, hind end injury, whether it be spinal or or, or something like that, and it causes them to have a lot of interference and regardless of how much um, ability they have, they always interfere and uh, cause themselves. They never really aspire to being as good as they should be, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm a bit intrigued about the the movement of the pacer. Um, so where where is that developed from or is it specific to breed or... Yeah, um, where it all came from was the modern history of it, really, was that um, in 1788, a thoroughbred stallion left from England and went to uh, Philadelphia in North America, and that stallion's name was Messenger. And he he is basically what they describe as the um, the father of harness racing. So he had the 10 stallions that are his progeny of one of them's called Hamiltonian and uh, I think Hamiltonian or Hamiltonian 10 I think anyway he they um they are or he is the roots of the harness racing and um from the Australian perspective that strain the North American standard bread was then imported to Australia and New Zealand uh, at a later date so so you can say 1788 in America is really the when Messenger went to America or Philadelphia, same place, um, North America. Um, that was the birth of harness racing in North America. Um, and later that strain found its way to Australia. And the first time anyone raced a, a standard bred race in Australia was in... 1860 and of all places not many people realize this but of all places most people would have heard of the most people in england i'm sure most people in the world have heard of the melbourne cup quite a famous thoroughbred race well that was that's race that race is held at flemington race course in melbourne and that was actually where they held the first harness race so in 1860 so you're talking about the time of the um, of the gold rush in Australia when um, 
you know, money was around, everybody wanted to bet. There was no other form of entertainment, so they were, you know, there was, there was coursing racing and thoroughbred racing, and and that was the birth of harness racing in Australia. It was in 1860 in Melbourne. So, in in relation to that, the birth of harness racing around, or you know, the French breed, French breed, as I said, it's resisted. It's resisted interbreeding from the um, North American standard breeds. So there was a the Norfolk Trotter um, basically was the um, the start of the breed in well, I can't think of the name of the of the horse in um, yeah in Europe. I think it might have been. Um, but anyway, it was wasn't long after the the blockade of France after the um, after the finish of the Battle of Waterloo, and the blockade of of um, France. So the French breed started up in 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 about that. Well, probably going before that, but it sort of started up about that time. And because of the blockade of France, they sort of um, they bred their horses there, and and the French trotter to this day is like one of the outstanding trotters in the world, you know. Um, and as I said, it's resisted up until recent times interbreeding with the North American standard bred. I think in recent years they've, they might have started doing a bit of interbreeding, but um, they're certainly, well, in Australian racing now, a lot of the European trotters have come over here, a lot of European stallions, and, um, and the trotting bred horses here in Australia now have, have got a lot of the European strain in so that they're a far superior trotter gate-wise than we ever had like 40 years ago in Australia. Um, they were pretty ordinary gated horses. So um, the trotting breed now, and of course people say why is it evolved so quickly, it's simply the fact that horses don't live as long as humans do, do they? So um, you see a lot of change within, within the... Um, Within the breed, within the you know, horses and the and the um, breeds so quickly because they don't live so long. So there's been there's been a huge change in Australian rotting itself um, in the last you know ten or fifteen years or probably even twenty that the breeds got that good. Like forty years ago, you used to have to put five ounce weights and and um, weld things into the toe of the trotter to well paces and things like that to make them crop um, whereas nowadays most of these new breeds of trotters which are getting like I said interbred from France and Europe and all those places um, they'll trot with aluminium shoes on or none at all you know so the breeds evolved that much in the last 20 years so just going rewinding a little bit so again we were saying about the pacers and the trotters how did the actual the pacing which is obviously a slightly different gait how did that evolve where did that come from because you know what was um, the why is there a difference why is there a difference mm. um i probably find it hard to answer that question i guess it was um it was it was certainly in america i know that much um 
a lot of people say it's an unnatural gait at pace. It's, it's not natural for it's not a natural gait for horses. It's a natural gait for camels. But um, you see a foal born, whether it's a thoroughbred or what it is, it always wants to pace when it first gets up because it's easier for it to coordinate. So um, it it definitely started in America the pacing. But um, I know that the the um, I think it was the Mormons or whoever it was that was up in, a, or the Amish or whoever in, up in Philadelphia there somewhere, um, probably seen that as it was it was faster, I guess, than a trot. And right. so when I used to race, I guess they thought, well, pacing's the way to go. It's faster. So it is, it is a little bit faster once they, when they're pacing, paces are faster than trotters predominantly. Mm. And um, may have been easier for them to hold the gate that way. So certainly people say it's not natural, but like I said, now the breeds are getting that good. That there's a lot of horses pace without hobbles on, you know. Mm. I used to drive a horse that's what they call a three-legged pacer, so um, he was he wouldn't go with hobbles on. Right. He fell I mean, over when he was young with the hobbles on. So. I mean, I do know. I mean, there's... there's um, <clears throat> A few different breeds and disciplines which seem to have this kind of almost fifth gear, if you like, be it pacing or with the Icelandic ponies doing the tolt. Um, it was, it was a few of these idiosyncrasies in different breeds and stuff. So obviously, you know, harness racing goes back to, well, goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but obviously you live in quite a young country compared with the great Brit great britain we live in obviously australia has not been around that long i believe um so obviously you know you said like it sort of goes back to the time of the gold rush and everything in australia how did the actual horse harness racing industry in australia um evolve if you like over the years to where we are now where we are now so um, yeah, it, it was all, Australia's always been a, um, uh, like, you know, they'll, they'll say that Australians will bet on two flies crawling up a wall. And I think that's, that was, that was how it evolved was basically it was a form of entertainment because those days you had, had nothing else to do but bet on things, they had plenty of money that they, um, like I said, in the gold rush and whatever. So if they weren't betting on thoroughbred racing, they were, they were betting on harness racing. And like I said, in the, in the late 50s through the mid-60s and 70s, um, there was no other form of entertainment. So it just got, it just got, um, it was huge. You go to the, you go to the trots when I was a kid and you couldn't walk around the place. There was hundreds and hundreds of bookmakers and there was no, um, I don't know, we call it the TAB here, the Totalizer Agency Board. It was run by the, um, which which is a form of, any form of betting, like the betting shops in Great Britain that you see was, everything was done on course, you know, and everybody got there and, uh, sorry, racing was the same, but harness racing was huge. And then they started to race at night to give other pe people an opportunity to go out, and it just flourished from there. That's how... Harness racing grew basically out of betting. Um, the people wanted to bet on something, and it was a form of entertainment. So that 
that being said, um, that is that has been the demise of of harness racing and racing as we know it. I think in every code now is that there's so many other things for people to do, and like they get online and they can bet, or they go to the casinos and bet. And I know that in America, speaking to some people in America and um, Canada, um, you know, uh, poking poking machines and and all of those other forms of entertainment. You know, football, um, all sorts of sports, uh, baseball, cricket, everything. There's so many other things for people to do now, and they can bet on all those things. So it's there's only so much money to go around, and and that has been that has been predominantly the the um, demise of not only harness racing in Australia, but I think harness racing around the world, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, and you're dead right about the bets. I mean, like every time you go on YouTube or turn the telly on, was another gambling company advertising their whatever they do, um, trying to lure people in. I suppose. I mean, uh, it's obviously a massive, massive thing. But when, you, like you say, when you can bet on everything now, um, I suppose back in the day, you know, horse horse racing, harness racing greyhounds you know that's where all the betting took place but like say now you can bet on things because your average your average um everyday person doesn't understand horses like maybe they once did um or even i suppose people used to learn about horses because they were gamblers and they wanted to win but when you can actually um bet on a subject you know more about you're just going to bet on that aren't you you are, and and one thing I probably should mention too is, is in saying that, what as I said, it is an instant world today. So people that do bet on th on things, um, they don't want to wait around for a result. So they're more mm -hmm. likely to go and bet on a greyhound race that's over in thirty or forty seconds. Whereas they watch a thoroughbred race, it's it's probably quicker too. It's, it's quite easy to jump out the gates and they just go flat out. So, you know, for whatever distance. In America, they race over a mile all the time, right? whereas right. in other countries, um, they race over various distances. New Zealand tend to race over longer distances uh, in general and have more horses in a in a race than what we do in Australia. Um, yeah. And um, in Europe, they race various different things. So if a race, if a harness race takes three or four minutes, people sort of, don't want to wait around for the result. They'd rather just bet on something that they can get a result quickly and bet on something else because that seems to be how hunters work. I don't know, but I've never been a punter. But um, I think that that's certainly, like I said, it's an instant world. People like instant results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like I say, I've got no, I've never shod or had anything to do with trotters, pacers, I know some people do do it in this country. I know a few farriers who partake and shoe them as well. Um, most of the ones I know of are sort of more uh, over, based over in Wales. Uh, I, I think it's a bigger thing over there. I mean, my, but my only time I've ever had anything to do with it, like I said, was when I was staying with yourself. And we went out that night and we went to your nearby town went to the local track where it was it was a great night out 
um mm. you know it was fun um and I, what i liked about it it was all it all seems a lot more if you go to a horse race over in the uk you know you've got this massive green course which you know you can't see the horses on the other side of the track but watching the um the, the trotters and stuff it was it seemed a lot more compact it's more of a circuit isn't it so you can see what's going on you can watch the action up close without having to look look at the big screen you know yeah it's um oh david gully when I, he come over here too um he loved them he, he he loved going to the races and seeing because everybody likes seeing something different don't they so he he loved yeah. walking around and looking at the horses and picking up horses feet and seeing different things because as farriers, we all we all like to see something different. It, it sometimes gets a bit, bit, you know, boring and stagnant. It's chewing one type of horse, and um, that was something that I that I found early in my career too. Is that people, as a farrier, I'm talking about, people would say, "Oh, you know, he comes from a harness racing background. He only chews harness horses." So I mm. made it a point when I was younger to make sure I shot all different types of horses you know um heavy horses and saddlebreds and all different things to, to hone my skills in different areas so i just didn't become pigeonholed if you know what i mean yeah i mean you yeah, you'll be able to answer this you know because i mean i obviously knowing you personally i i know the diverse amount of different types of horses that you have shot and still do shot uh, sorry still do show um but from an outside looking in, in what i see of the sort of like harness racing fairy um side of it it seems very complicated i mean you alluded to earlier about lots of weights and things like that to get the horses to do certain things it all looks you know it all looks very science scientific and there's a lot of knowledge involved uh, because it's a gated, because it's a gated um, race, basically, or they they right, they they got their own particular gates. There, there's a lot of variances and and different things that can go. There's probably more things that can go wrong than anything else. Um, as I said, thirty thirty five years ago, um, you you'd have. You know, I remember my grandfather would have have uh, paces that weren't quite fast enough or and so you know it's, they, they turn they turn the gate into trots they turn them into a trotter and to do that sometimes you'd have to put big brass five ounce weights on their toe or or whatever and fiddle around with their um their weight and their toe to, to actually make them lift their legs up and trot and, and they could you know get around in a trot and race and, and earn some money whereas um it's not that often that you turn a trotter into a pacer. It's more the other way around, than a pacer into a trotter. Um, but there are, in saying that, there have been some great horses in Australia who, who we call, or what we refer to as dual-gated, so they can trot as quick as they can pace. And a lot of... My grandmother bought a horse one time when I was about 13 or 14. We were at... Um, we were at a at a trial trial meeting, and uh, she seen this horse trotting, uh, going around the pacing race, and she said, uh, "Come on, have a look at this." 
and uh, Wester Shell stood there with her and watched his horse go around. He was in a he was in a pacing race, and she said, "You see the way that horse goes." And these are the things that she used to say to me, you know, and I didn't realise I was learning things at the time, but I was. He said, that horse is a trotter, a trotter, not a pacer. And I said, oh, how do you know that? And she said, see, he wants to, when he pulls up, he wants to trot and hobble. I said, all right. So he went up to the chap and she, um, he said, oh, I was a horse for sale. And he said, oh, he's anything for sale. So I think she bought it off him for two and a half thousand dollars. And he got her home, turned that horse into a trotter. And he was Australasian Trotter of the Year the next year as a three-year-old. He won two derbies, you know. He was a very, very good horse. Uh, there was only one horse who was just a little bit better than him at the time, and it's a bad thing when you get a really good horse and there's one just a little bit better than it. But um, he won he won $30,000 in the first year. It was a pretty good purchase for two and a half. It was just through, you know, her knowledge. So she just turned him into a trotter and away he went. Um, you know, and... A few years ago, I changed my shoeing chaps. I had a nice pair of silverback chaps and I moved to another brand. Thought I'd give them a go. Over that period of time, I've probably shod less horses because of doing more teaching. And I dare say my core strength has suffered. It became apparent over the last year that my back was getting worse and worse and I was even getting sort of bouts of sciatica as well. Recently, I've retired said apron and gone back to silverback chaps. I've got to say, within... A shoeing cycle, my back is so much better. The innovative design, it supports you. And as long as you fit them and you're wearing them correctly, it will help your back, which let's face it, is the number one tool in the farrier's toolbox. So you, there are some there are some horses, that, a lot of horses that have won early races as a pacer and um, later been turned into a trotter. And I think one of the best horses in Australia was a horse called Scotch Notch, which that's the bloke I was saying about before, Graham Lang, had, and she, um, it was a mare, and she won the, um, oh, she actually broke the world record as a trotter. And if I believe correctly, she actually won a race as a two-year-old as a pacer, and she was a brilliant trotter. She was one of the best ever. So another another horse that was an absolute out-and-out champion was a horse called Maori's Idol in Australia, and... Um, the chap that trained him, Mr. Healy, he um, he would trot one day that horse and pace the next, and he could trot as quick as he could pace. And he was a he was a brilliant horse, and uh, he was he was what you would refer to as a dual gated horse. Um, they actually have a rule here in Australia now to prevent people from trotting them in one race and pacing them in another. So they have to stay in a certain gate for a certain amount of time. The only difference is, just to confuse things, that a trotter can race against a pacer, but a pacer can't race against a trotter. So you can put a trotter in a pacer's race and race against the pacers, but um, pacers aren't allowed to go in a trotter's race. So just to confuse things a bit more. Mm, so just going back to the horses themselves, obviously you said a lot of them, Sort of, most of them sort of derive like uh, from a North American standard bred. What kind of age do they start them in training, and what's their kind of, you know, what's their kind? What age does their career sort of span over? Um. Yeah. So a lot of guys, 
<clears throat> start working them or break them in at a very young age, you know, um, one and a half to start breaking them in, mouthing them and all that sort of thing. People say, like, you know, you always hear people saying, oh, you, you shouldn't be doing things, especially if they talk about warm bloods and all those sort of things. They say, you know, they haven't developed, you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. But um, And there's a lot of criticism about um, racing early young thoroughbreds too. But I think what a lot of people don't understand about horses is the horses live a lot, don't live as long. So, you know, when they're, when they're three or four, they're teenagers, aren't they? So, if, you know, you go to the Olympics and you you see the best in the world at any sport, um, with the exception of long-distance running, um, especially swimming, all of the world champions are only, you know, 17 or 18, things like that. Once they're 20, they're too old. They can't keep up. And, you know, horses are the same. They're teenagers when they're young. Um, so I sort of disagree with what some people say, but with harness racing in particular, they do start quite early, as I said, to break them in and teach them to go in a cart so they're not scared of it. But you've got to remember, and a lot of people forget, especially you know when you're talking to vets, they try to make comparison between thoroughbred racing and harness racing or riding and all that sort of thing. You've got to remember that a harness horse does not have any weight on their back. No. So he's not under anywhere near as much grain bone-wise to carry weight. He's actually pulling it. So when you look at where a cart goes and all that, you're moving the weight. Like Normally we say you've got 60% of, 60 on the front legs and 40% on the hind legs, but you put a cart on a horse and all the weight moves quarter, it all goes back. So the centre point of balance of a horse should be six inches up from its ulna and six inches back. But with a harness horse, if you look at that, the standard point of balance is actually further back because a horse pulling a cart does not have any weight on its back. So it's not tipping itself forward and pulling itself and propelling itself forward on its front legs. So, um, and again, the second thing you've got to remember is that it's a gated thing. So a thoroughbred has one foot on the ground at a time when it's going flat out. There's a lot of weight on that one leg and that tendon and and the tendons and ligaments and so on and so forth, whereas a harness horse or a gated horse will have at least two feet on the ground at a time. So, again, you haven't got that same amount of, of weight on the leg. So, you know, starting them at a younger age like that, it's more education than it is to looking, looking for speed, Daniel. Uh, mm. It's more education. So with harness horses, if, you don't have a, if they don't have a good mouth, you're never going to have a good horse. And Graham Lang, when we was getting horses going, and he, him and my grandfather and grandmother and all that, they all used to say to me, you can teach a horse to do most things, but the one thing you can't teach them to do is go fast for a long time. If they're going to do that, they will anyway. If you teach him to go properly, then teach him to have good manners and teach him to be, you know, um, relaxed and stop when he wants to stop and go when you want him to go, um, which is all through the mouth with with um, harness racing, um, then you'll end up with a good horse. But if, you, if you're just looking for speed all the time, you sort of send them off the head. Mm. Um, so with that as well, yeah, with that as well, um, 
So obviously they race on the track. What is is that more artificial surface or turf or what do they actually run on? It's changed a lot over the years. They they still do in New Zealand and they have done in Australia, but very limited. Um, there's one place in Australia still that they race on grass. It's a place called King Island, a little island in the middle of Bass Strait. And they apparently sort of, uh, it's a thoroughbred racing track. And so in King Island, they race for three months of the year. And they have thoroughbred races and standardbred races on the same day. So they might have, you know, five thoroughbred races and four standardbred races or vice versa, depending on what horses they've got at the time. So they race on grass. Um, and there's a huge difference between standard breads that are racing on grass and standard breads that are racing on artificial surfaces. So in America, um, and most of the time in Australia and most of the places in the world, there's a few that race on grass. New Zealand, there's a couple of places they still race on grass. Um, but standard breads, when they're racing on grass, certainly nowhere near as fast. And you'll find with some of them that they um, they aren't as confident in their gait, so they they tend to flip a bit. And so traction devices are, are something, you know, when I say traction devices, I'm not talking about studs, um, but I'm talking about, um, you know, outer rim shoes or, or um, diuretic nails or things like that to uh, help them with their confidence on the grass because they tend to slip a little bit so they're not as and they're a lot more confident if they can feel the ground whereas on the whole the tracks that we have here now so to put it in perspective 30 years ago there was a there was a thought that to make horses or to, to get horses to go faster the tracks had to be like concrete like rock hard and we used to have a lot of uh, pedal bone fractures um, tendon injuries all from these hard tracks um, I related to the hard tracks because horses were hitting the ground and and um, they were holding the ground they weren't they were, they were we were tending to take the slide phase out of the um, out of the equation and well that's what we were doing unbeknownst and so Paolo Dwyer, I mentioned him earlier, um, he, he got talking to a guy called Bede Island, and he was a man that developed um, cracks and surfaces, worked very hard, and I think Carl, Carl might have been the instigator in bringing him out. And they went and looked at track, different cambers on track. So when I say camber, I mean the, the um, like the edge on a, on a bicycle velodrome track. I know you ride bicycles, Daniel, but probably not those sort of bicycles, but, um, you know, it's a, the camber on the tracks and how that affected horses and how they make them go faster. And then they looked at um, the actual surfaces and what they came up with was that if you had a, a solid bait underneath, but then you had a, 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 a buffer, basically a buffer of, um, of um, material, on top of that, that allowed the horse to hit the ground and still slide and basically fill the concavity of its foot, um, they found the horses weren't breaking down anywhere near as much and they were going faster. So 
what they tend to do now, which they were doing that in America quite some time before here, and all they wanted to do here is make the tracks hard, which, as, you, as you're aware, we do have quite an a, uh, unforgiving environment in Australia in some places. But, um, yeah, they found that once they started churning the track up, and they, can, they call it conditioning the track now, they actually make machines for it, and it churns the track up a little bit, and they have this buffer zone of um, material on top that allows the horses, if you go out onto a harness racing track now and you walk along after a race before they've put this conditioner over it, you'll notice that you can see the horse's um, foot and you can actually see where they are hitting the ground and sliding. So so we we really gave them back that, that slide phase, if you know what I mean. And, you know, as... It allowed the horses to, or put to function better, if, which is, in one way, it's, well, it's what we need to do, isn't it? It's all about correct function. No matter when we're chewing horses, it's all about correct function and try to get things to work as normally as they can. So we see a lot less, the horses are going a lot faster than they've ever gone. Um, world records and things coming out of Australian horses everywhere. And... Um, they're faster than they've ever been on smaller tracks than they have in America. In a lot of cases, they have mile tracks in America. We don't have very many of them here. And um, horses are going a lot faster, and horses aren't having anywhere near as many injuries. So predominantly with harness racing injuries, you tend to get a few more hind limb injuries than you would in thoroughbred racing. And again, that comes back to moving that weight quarterly and not having weight on a horse's back. So you're not sitting on top of the horse, you're sitting behind the horse and he's pulling the weight. So you have a few more hind limb. There's a, predominantly a few more hind limb problems um, that you look for than you do front ones. But we don't seem to be having anywhere near as many broken pedal bones anymore. And tendon injuries, you know, front tendon injuries are, are um, one in one in one in a hundred now, you know, to whereas they used to be with hard tracks, they used to be quite prominent. So, just out of interest, um, what kind of shoes? So, you, you obviously you talked a little bit about some of the sort of variants and stuff, but your basic everyday sort of shoeing on on a harness horse to race. What kind of shoes are we talk? We're we talking plates. We're talking. Obviously, it's going to be lightweight, but we're talking more of a concave section. What what we do, what do you put on? Basically, now you could nearly say that ninety um, percent of the standard breads in Australia are racing in aluminium racing plates. So, okay. Such is, and I mean, you talk about the evolution of that. We used to have same as thoroughbred racing did when we were shoeing thoroughbreds thirty years ago. We we're putting that little thin. Um, eight by or quarter inch section on you know um quarter inch concave section it had no toe clips on it had no pitch and it was they were horrible shoes you know and then when um and paces and trotters were wearing the same trotters used to wear more of a a, a um co-weighted sort of uh, three quarter three eight concave shoe on the front give them a little, little bit more weight whereas i said a lot of trotters today they trot that good though they've all got aluminium shoes on and no shoes at all um a lot of the horses in europe they they might take the race the shoes off prior to the race 
race them without shoes and put them back on afterwards. Um, I think one night when I was in Paris, all I seen the farrier do all night was take shoes off. Never seen him put one on. And, um, you know, so that's how it's evolved. Like we used to have, like I said, really heavy shoes on them once. And, and um, that little uh, standard gallop and, gallop and plate steel that we used on, on thoroughbreds on the paces. Um, and now, as you'd know yourself, like the evolution in horseshoeing, um, the Sedco plates that we used to have years ago, though, you could bend them with your hands and they'd fall off if you didn't put them on right or it was go to a wash and slip and pull them off and you'd have a thoroughbred trainer ring you and tell you he broke his foot away. Nowadays, the plates are that good. You can just leave them on for four weeks and we shoe them with harness horses. You shoe them every every three or four weeks, the same as a thoroughbred. Um, so it's pretty much, you know, shoes are that good now. Um, St. Croix shoes, Kirkarts, all in there, all that good that you can just put them on and leave them on. And, and, you know, I was talking to a farrier about it yesterday. We were talking about the old way of old way of plating thoroughbreds years ago. We used to take and go to the races and you'd um, pull the work shoes off and put a, put a plate on to race. And then that afternoon you'd take the plate off and put the shoe back on and you know, farriers talk about not being able to nail up thoroughbreds today. Geez, I don't know how they would have gone back in them days because you were taking shoes off and putting shoes on all the time. You know, whereas yeah. nowadays, I, I think, I think some of the some of the farriers today, they're very very lucky in that they have so much um, choice of product. Daniel, you know, the mm. world's a small place now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. You know, people. I think you know, it's. I know, like it when I started, and definitely when you started. You know what there was on the market to buy. It was all by the time you'd you'd fitted it, you'd might as well have just made them yourself because it, it oh, wasn't yeah. it wasn't easy to work with, was it? No, no, and you know, if you wanted something special, like you know, I I think back now, harking back, you know, to the the way things have evolved and it's all it's all come through it's all come through well it's come through a lot of things but from the ferry perspective in australia australia is a long way away from the rest of the world we were lucky in the farrier associations over here that have so many great clinicians come from um you know england and scotland america different places come to australia and if i'd have known 30 years ago, I had to make an aluminium bar shoe. The amount of horses I could have helped would have been a phenomenal, you know. But I had no idea how to make an aluminium bar shoe 30 years ago. Now, if you, you know, to make an aluminium bar shoe on a thoroughbred or a standard bread, it's the easiest way in the world to keep them going. Because you, can, you can't have a big, heavy, heavy bar shoe on them. And um, like I said, today, we're so lucky and, and young farriers, they got the world at their feet because not only you don't have to get blokes in from overseas now, they can see everything on the they can go and watch lockdown learning and <laughs> anywhere and learn how to how to make a shoe or, or how to do something. And if they don't know how to do it, they can just get on the internet and ask somebody and you know, you can go and watch Craig Trinker make shoes or Daniel Bennett make shoes or Grant Moon make shoes and so on and so forth, you know. All around the world. Whereas it's accessible now, whereas it wasn't 30 years ago. No. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the good thing about the internet. Yeah, but I say that's one of the sort of the more, the more, 
the more we go down this path of social media, the more, you know, they, they are the good things, uh, but then there's a lot of negatives to all that as well, but let's not go there. But I mean, get you, you say about learning to um, make aluminium bar shoes, obviously you learned the Crosby method um, from I our did, dear did. friend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but he won't like that, but, um, but no, it's the, so with, with, harness racing so we talked a little bit about normal sort of standard shoes just out of interest with the back shoes i mean i know a lot of um horses racing certainly in this country a lot of the hind shoes have just a toe clip on the back is that the same with the harness racing horses or do they have court clips on or hind feet that's it's interesting you say that because i sort of forgot about mentioning that but one thing that used to be the norm here in Australia was for people to leave hind feet too long, in my opinion. Right? Mm -hmm. And so you ended up with a negative palmer angle, a planter angle, really, uh, on them all the time. Um, horses are overreaching, and because that comes from having a toe clip, doesn't sort of help much there. And cross firing with paces is probably one of the worst things they can do from behind. Injure themselves and stand on a stand on their front foot and fall over with the hobbles on. It's probably not the safest thing in the world to be doing driving one when they do that. And so it used to be cross-firing is probably one of the worst things a pacer can do with the, from behind, with the exception most horses that that, are, that have got a problem um, with gait. It'll, the worst thing they can do really is hit their, hit their knee, but we'll get onto that in a minute. But... So we'll talk about the hind feet at the moment. Um, so it was predominant that old trainers used to say, oh, he's got to have a lot of foot behind. He's got to have a longer foot. And it'll, it'll delay the breakover. Yeah, it may delay the breakover, but it'll also lengthen the stride. So it goes against the series of any farrier book in the world. So there's this misconception amongst farriers that you have to have all these weird and wonderful angles on on standard bred horses to make them go on shoeing horses or shoeing horses. If you apply the the um, you know the series of balance, keeping the bony column in line with the fastenax balanced and the correct weight um, on the joints and tendons and ligaments and everything, um, trimming the foot's the most important thing. So. If you trim the foot properly, yeah, there's no problem, and most paces would have a either a standard galloping plate, hind plate on the back, or a um, pacing shoe, which O'Dwyer's make. It's got a, it's made out of steel. It's um, drawn down a bit on the inside, there's a little trailer on it. Um, so either that, or some people put those hind, those pacing hind shoes on from O'Dwyer's and you can actually buy them without a trailer on because a lot of fa a lot of trainers turn their horses out in the paddock together, the standard breeds, and let them socialise and play in the afternoon and uh, they cut the trailers off so while they're playing they don't pull one another's shoes off. Um, so there's that. <clears throat> um, I have in recent years been more inclined to... Um, Give horses, put some side clips on and a square toe behind, especially on trotters, to stand them up and 
and um, get a better balance behind. So, you know, there's there's no one set way of shooting behind. Obviously, you got to change and do what you do with any other horse. It's subject to um, to whatever problem that horse is having, you know. And certainly, um, I disagree and and have proven that it doesn't work having long toes behind. Um, it doesn't do anything to the horse at all other than cause problems, especially no. in the back. You know, you, you end up with horses, a lot of tr- a lot of trotters that you go to the races and, you, and you'd observe with people that were shooing them themselves or, or, or describing to this long hind foot behind, describing to that theory. You'll walk past those horses. You can see they're sore in the back. Some of them will have hunter's bump, you know, um, sacrociliac ligament problems. You can see them walking that way and they're sort mm. of drawn out and, you know, in the in the muscle behind and the um, hamstring group and all that, and you can see they're sore, and mm-hmm. you can even see it when they race. That those horses will skip more than they will have a fluent fluent gait. So, but you know, it it's not rocket science shoeing horses, and it's not rocket science shoeing standard It's it's just describing to all the all the textbook methods of keeping horses stood up and keeping the keeping the foot functional and um, and keeping the the ligaments and tendons doing what they should be doing in a normal in a normal you know realm, if you want to put it that way. Mm. So obviously, you touched on a few sort of like problems um, which you commonly get. What so what are the main sort of common ailments, pathologies, and condi- condi- conditions and injuries we you see sort of showing uh, these harness horses? Mo- the main interference problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the worst one that any horse can have is knee knocking. It's um, knee knocking is um, so basically, trotters and paces will both both knee knock. So when they knee knock, um, really, in essence, they're not actually hitting their knee. They're hitting the medial styloid of the radius, which is a little bump that sticks out on the inside, and everybody says it's a knee, but it's actually the medial styloid of the radius that sticks out. And so, um, and what they hit, what they hit, strike that, that with with, their, with their opposing foot on the other side, front foot. So the okay. front foot actually comes in under. It, it actually goes looking for. It seems to go looking for that medial styloid of the radius, and. Uh, so a lot of horses, you'll see them, they, they say it's the knee because they, they put on a boot called a knee boot to protect it. So, so those horses that hit their knees, um, it's without question the most prominent debilitating um, interference problem in standard breeds worldwide, without question. Um, those horses, it, it, it um, puts them off balance, it, it slows them up, it damages them and it hurts them and their legs blow up. So they've developed, trainers have developed a number of different things over the years, um, things that we call, now it's going to get confusing now, but um, things that we call spreaders or, or guiders, and they go over the end of the shaft, go over the horse's leg and basically go under his arms and um, try to as try to spread the gait or try to spread his feet as he's going. So basically in the air, but um, you know 
for limited success because uh, anything you put on like that that restricts the horse, it, it um, probably slows them down a little bit too. But um, I think I was telling you, Danny, that recently I'd done a bit of a uh, research on, on knee knocking because it was something that intrigued me, always has. And as I said, it's the most debilitating thing. So I, um, I, I did a little study of harness horses of standard breeds and trotters both so put it in perspective in australia there's um standard breeds of trotters so there's uh 27 trotters to 73 percent um paces so the 70 pacing is more prominent so there's 23 percent to 73 so so in, in in light of that when i done this little study i um I'd done it accordingly, and I, I had more paces in the study than I did trotters, so it was so it was representative of the of the percentage of the industry. And uh, what I found was that the one thing that was the same with all of the horses that well, the one the one predominant or predominant factor was that all of the horses that hit their knees had a rotational limb deformity. Yeah. Commonly, and what, what was really interesting about that that I didn't go looking for, but found anyway, um, and which is always something that comes out of looking at any of these things, isn't it? You know, there's something, something hidden factor that you might just stumble over. And what I found was that a lot of the trainers that uh, have paces, when they, when you gallop a horse, being that it's a different gait. Um, when you gallop a horse, they don't hit their knee, right? So a lot of a lot of trainers to work a, to work a pacer, they'll take them out and they'll gallop them. All of these horses that were hitting their knee, or the majority of them that were hitting their knee, with this rotational limb deformity, majority of them, the trainers started to mention to me, oh yeah, he doesn't hit his knee when I gallop him, but he hits his back leg. So they were speedy cutting, right? So I thought, well, that that sort of led me into. I wonder if the same thing, well, same thing, must happen in thoroughbred racing, you know. So I mean, that that was another off branch or offshoot of um, of doing that. And I thought, well, that you know, I wasn't looking for it, but that's what I found. So, so rotational limb deformity is certainly the it's the um, contributing factor to knee knocking. So, as in regard to trying to prevent it from a thorough's point of view, it's like I said, it's the hardest thing to do. So if you shorten a horse's foot up and you put something like a fast break on a you know um, a fast break over shoe, we all know that if you stand a horse up you, you change its action so it'll have a higher action and uh, won't stride out as far. Whereas you put a long toe on the horse, it'll it'll tend to have a lower action and uh, a longer stride. So going with that theory uh, there's different people have tried different ways of, of trying to shoe horses with paces, uh, paces or any trotters, paces or trotters with knee knocking problems. So some people opt to leave a longer toe on a like a, a, a lateral toe grip or something like that to try and hold the ground and stop the twist. And most commonly, that tends to the, the lateral toe theory, holding that outside toe with a rotational limb deformity. Um, will alleviate and bring that horse just under the medial thyroid 
And if you put a brake over shoe on, obviously they're going to lift up higher and sometimes they will get over it, but they'll, they'll have such an exotic action that it, that it tires them a little bit. So, um, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, but it, um, it tends to be, and I, and the other thing I looked at with that study was to see if there was a, a trend that trainers or farriers went with, because they weren't all shod by me, these horses. I tried to choose horses that were shod by other people to give a proper perspective of what other farriers were doing, not necessarily what I thought. And um, I, I wanted to see if there was a trend to go with that longer toe rather than rather than the shorter one. And what I found is that the majority of these horses, now you've got to bear in mind that Barrier in Australia isn't like it is in England, so it's not registered. It's not regulated. So, a lot, especially these guys in harness racing, a lot of the trainers can shoe the horses as good as most of the farriers. Right? So a lot of, and especially if a horse has got a problem, a lot of trainers opt to do it themselves so they can change it more often and and uh, see if they can help or rectify that situation. So, what I found is I did measurements on toe length and measurements on medial lateral wall length. Try and see if there's a, if there was a trend to sort of lowering a horse one way or another way, and measuring hook pass and axis or angles. Um, and what I found was that majority of these horses were shod really, really well, um, regardless of who. Would, and you know, I didn't look at what barrier it was or or keep a record of that. I just I just took a measurement of the angles. So um, there wasn't. The horse's feet were quite well balanced. There didn't seem to be a tend or a trend to go towards a longer toe or anything. People were trying to keep horses well balanced. It. And I think, again, coming back to the lack of injuries in horses, as in pedal bone injuries and tendon injuries, again, that's a reflection on, on how people have progressed and the shoeing's got better, even if, it from a, even if it's from an un, unqualified perspective and a lot of that comes again from the internet and, and the information that's out there i think well and i think you know again and you're dead right and i totally agree with you but again we've got a lot more science backing that information up now as well because let's face it when we started training we just did what we were told to do because we got told to do it and dare we ever question it you know it's um but i say ev a lot everything science based now and we've got the technology to go and see it interestingly i did see um i don't know since since obviously speaking to you the other day um about this um <clears throat> you know how like you've when you go on social media, if you've been talking having a conversation about something it starts showing you it doesn't it it's like it's big brothers listening but i keep seeing clips of, of harness racing horses where they've got a camera so obviously a good quality camera and they've put it on the back of the buggy looking through the horse's limbs so you can actually see the limbs moving um i suppose one thing it does lend itself to is that that's a camera angle you wouldn't see on the ridden horse and i found it actually quite fascinating I started watching this horse and I was, I was staring at it for at least four minutes looking at the footfall and where it was tracking to and stuff like that. It was all quite fascinating. Yeah, I, um, I, I actually, at different times, a couple of years ago, I, um, I was thinking, I was, from talking to you and watching your 
um, when we were talking about GoPros and when you were doing your bike riding. And um, I thought, well, that would be a good idea. I might stick one of those GoPro things on a, on a sulky. And, and so we started using it not only at, at a lot of the um, stables that I was working at, the horses that were having a little bit of a gate problem. And, and that's what sort of showed you clearly where they were hitting. And, and there was one particular horse that was a, a young horse that was breaking stride. Or he was a pacer and he was breaking stride all the time on the turns. And, and the trainer said that he thought he was cross-firing. And uh, we couldn't figure out he didn't have any marks on him. So we went and had a look at him and um, put the GoPro on him and went out. And he wasn't touching anywhere. He, he was actually, he had a problem up high, behind, and turned him out for a while, and, and the vet treated it, and away he went. So it was a it was a ligament problem up in his back, but he wasn't actually hitting anywhere. But yet, you know, you, you come because he was breaking stride. Everybody thought that he was crossfiring, and over the years, I've had some even some really really good drivers who said, "Oh, this horse is doing this, and it's doing that, and it's doing this." Well, I challenge anyone when they're driving a horse or riding a horse, along jockeys and drivers are probably the two best in the world to tell you that they what they think they know. Um, you can't see. There's no way in the wide world your mind can tabulate that information to be able to slow a horse's foot down when you're watching it and driving it to see where it's yeah. going. But you can put that GoPro on and you can watch it time and time and time again, you know. Yeah. And I even saw, I wonder what it would be like to, put one on in a race because they started doing a lot of um, you know, the TV people were putting GoPros on drivers' helmets and trying to give a different perspective to the public in that respect. But there is a there's a law or a rule in harness racing that says you can't use electronic devices on the track, whether it be stopwatches or whatever in a race. And I thought, well, I can't really do that because it's against the rules. So I went and seen a our chief steward at the time, um, Mr. Day, and I was telling him what I wanted to do, and I said, would that be okay to put a GoPro on the sulky? And he said he can't see any problem on that as long as it, it's secured properly. And so we started doing it in races, and it was amazing to see, you know, how horses are, like they're up, up close in races. They like race a lot closer in Australia and New Zealand than what they do in the United States. You know, the horses aren't anywhere near as close. The carts are a lot wider now than what we used to have, so we used to be bumping one another around all the time here and up really close to one another. The carts are a bit wider now, but, you know, the effect of having another horse moving on the inside when you've got a horse outside of it or horses, you know, going around the canvas, it was really interesting with that GoPro to, to be able to blow things down and see it. And Now every time we seem to have a problem, with a horse and we can't figure out what it is, the first thing we do is put a GoPro on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the, and the thing is with that technology as well, I and mean, I've say I've just brought a new one myself and the difference between my new one and the one I brought five years ago is just night and day. I mean, you could, you could be qualities that good when you slow it down. It's just, I could imagine you'd see so much more, you know, uh, yeah, we, we're actually, I, was, I can't think of who I was talking to the other day. I was talking about the same sort of thing, and it'd be great to mount one on a thoroughbred too. Um, mm. he, this chap was telling me that it was done underneath the horse's um, martingale. 
Oh, okay. They put like a breastplate on it and done it underneath. So like, but it was shooting backwards rather than forwards. And so, um, I like, as you said, they're getting a lot smaller than what they used to be and a yeah. lot more compact. So, um, you know, not like you're putting a big camera there, you're putting this little thing there. And I said, oh, that'd, that'd be good. So, you know, it's but really Chase, interesting. Chase it with, what you can learn. Chase it with a drone, the thoroughbred. Yeah, I think a few of them need chasing. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, that's obviously we talked about knee hitting. Any other kind of common injuries we see with harness racers? Um, well, cross-firing and knee knocking is the two, the two um, gate-related ones. But um, commonly with harness racing, as I said, you you have with cotters, cotters will... Um, Speedy cut behind in different, various different places. Gulp or speedy cut behind. So it's always hind limb, usually hind limb interference with trotters. And as I said, they're either an outside go to trotter behind or they trot inline. So gulping is more prominent for an inline trotter, whereas speedy cutting on the inside cannonbone um, behind is um, is probably the one that's um, more prominent. But they they do wear back boots on them, the trotters, to, to prevent any injuries. Um, one thing that you you tend to see a bit in trotters is um, suspensory ligament. There's mitis behind, right. um, usually up high. And the other one that you see a lot in young young paces and trotters is um, curb hock. So... It it's what, no, sorry? We all know, it's just a curbed hock with inflammation of the plantar oh, ligament. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's not, curbed hock's not the end of the world, but, you know, they'll go sore when it's inflamed. But um, inflammation of the plantar ligament is all the curbed hock is. Um, like once they're, once they're three or four, well, you know, once, once it's been there, depending on how bad it is, it, it sort of, it's not a long-term debilitating thing, curb talk. A bit of an immaturity thing, or, or sometimes they can you know, pull back or damage themselves. Who knows how they do it with horses? They can do all sorts of things, can't they? So. What? I mean, so I, I assume most of your shoeing packages um, with, with the harness racing horses are more preventative type shoes you know sort of uh, preventers and speed cutting shoes stuff like that um no not that much anymore daniel um like i said the horses are a lot better gated than they used to be and um like i said there's a misconception especially amongst farrows when it comes to standard bird horses that we used to make lots of, you know, half round, half swedges or penny weights or all sort of preventative things at one point in time. But as you get better at, or once you understand the the um, anatomy of a horse and trim the foot properly, the rest of it comes to comes together, you know. And like I said, shoes are so good now that it's all about trimming, really. It's all, you know, we don't, I think it's a misconception of farriers worldwide, um, we don't put enough emphasis on our trims. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but I, I don't think I don't think we put enough emphasis on our trims. You know, 
if our trims are right and we apply a shoe to it, then everything works. So nice, balanced, good trim that makes the foot functional. And the rest mm. of it, provided the horse hasn't got an angular limb deformity or something, it all comes together. You really yeah. don't need many preventative shoes anymore. <clears throat> um, I, interesting enough, to, I was um, listening to a very good podcast the other day um, with Brian Mullins, where he was talking to Chad Lawson, and they were talking about... Um, I was talking about marketing and barefoot trimmers and stuff. And Chad said to Brian, he said, what, what are barefoot trimmers really good at? And he said, marketing. He said, what they're really bad at? He said, trimming feet. What Farrah is really bad at? And he said, marketing. What, what we're really good at? Trimming feet. And, you know, I, I do think that, you know, farriers, I do, I do think, I think foot trimming is, I think it's, it's front and center of what we do. For most barriers, I think there are sometimes and in some places where farriers are probably playing the numbers game. So they're probably rushing through the foot trim more than they probably should just to get the numbers of the volume of horses done each day because of what they're charging. But I think, you know, I, I do, I remember. I know it's a conversation we have all the time, but I mean, I remember when I came into this job, you know, you'd see out and about, you take on new clients. You, I used to see a lot more awful um, shoeing and foot trimming than I do now. What I tend to see now is predominantly, you know, we're talking millimetre tolerances to quarter to half an inch tolerances, what I used to see, you know. It's. I think it's something. I. I think. I think the general standard of foot trimming now is is far outweighs what it used to be. I think you're right. Um, and like I said, horses are getting better, especially standard breads and the breed and everything. But um, the understanding of trimming the foot and keeping it functional is is really the basis. Anytime someone says, "Oh, that horse is crossfire nowadays," or "Or he's doing this or doing that," if he if he's if his anatomy or his conformation is okay and you trim it normally, you really don't have to use too many preventative shoes. You know, it's mm. all, a, it's, the more you do the job, we'd hope, we'd hope we get better over the years. Like you shoe horses for 30 years and think, geez, I wish I'd have known that 30 years ago would have made my job a lot easier. You know, mm. so it is, you know, it, I think trimming's the key to it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, I suppose, especially with feet, that size and, of that quality, you know, a bit like shearing racehorses, you know, you've got a quite a small tolerance and a small amount of foot to play with each time, especially shearing on like three week cycles, you know, it's marginal gains, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too that people forget about. It's that when you're shearing thoroughbreds and you know, that's the old age old argument amongst farriers, like how much how much room do you give them, like how much how much chew do you put on them? Um it's simple. If you're shoeing a horse every three weeks, you can afford to shoe them like a hunter fit. Whereas, if if you're doing it every eight weeks, well, you've got to give them a bit of you've got to give them a bit of room for the foot to expand. But eight weeks is too long a cycle for any horse, if you ask me. But um, yeah, yeah, you're shoeing you these that. these horses like like thoroughbreds, you know. Um, thoroughbreds and standardbreds are pretty much they're very similar nowadays. Thoroughbreds are getting a lot smaller than they used to be. They seem to be breed-wise. Go and look at thoroughbreds now. They're not real big horses. Um, but 
Yeah, you, you're shoeing them more often. If you're shoeing them tight, you've got to shoe them off. If you're shoeing tight, you've got to shoe them more often. And when you're shoeing them more often, you're able to keep them um, at a more at a more um, consistent um, angle, I'd say. You know, cons- mm. more more consistent. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like I, I've said it, I've said it before, and was talking about it to students the other day. Um, an eight-week shoeing cycle doesn't suit any horse; just suits some of their owners, no. you know. But anyway, well, obviously, very insightful, in-depth talk on harness racing. There, I mean, it, it, and again, we are just scratching the surface. You know, it's I say, having spent time in your forge and seen some of the swages and the, the different shoes hanging up around the place, you know, it's an absolute it's like any discipline isn't it we can go as deep as you want to go and you know there's a lot of things what you know you go into any any forge like your own and you look at some of these shoes hanging up on the boards which people have made you know over the years you know these different types of shoes especially from the days of workhorses you know they were there to get get the job done whereas in this day and age you know a lot of horses are not working anymore and they're more like pets and it's more some some of it, you know, has been proven, but maybe it wasn't as good and wasn't as, as effective for that problem. Just out of interest, just out of interest, do you come across, you know, are there a lot of, do you, are you seeing more things like 3D pads and stuff being used with the harness horses when they're racing or? Um, I don't think any more than you used to. Uh, there's a bit of a, Fad harness racing is very fu- very funny in that, that it's very subject to fads. I suppose any type of racing really, because everybody's looking for an edge, something that they can do that's going to give them, you know, the edge on another trainer. So um, it's it's very trainers are, are great at coming up and showing us. Oh, so oh, put these on. Can you put these on? That'll go two seconds quicker. And I've ne- I'm yet to see one shoe that's ever gone on and improved a horse any more than it was going. Um, mm. You know, I one trainer used to say it to me all the time. Every time he would, he wanted to try a new shoe, I'd, I'd bring the box of shoes and I threw it on the ground. And he said, what's that box? And I said, that's the last 10 years of shoes we've tried that didn't work, <laughs> you know. Um, and, you know, I understand that they're all looking for an edge, but there is there is no there is no weird and wonderful way. If it, the thing I have found with uh, um, the 3D pads, though, I will say, is that it, some people that have brought me horses that have had a negative palmer or planter angle, um, and we put the 3D pads on with a sole impression material, it has it has helped and sped up the the normality of the foot and the function of the foot, and got it back to a point where you could just put a normal shoe back on. And and again, I'm not – I think that with any of those things, any type of remedial shoe, and I correct me if I'm wrong, like this is just my thoughts on this, I think that any time you use a bar shoe or a, or a remedial pad or shoe or whatever you're doing, the, the idea of doing that is to get that horse's foot back to a point where it's normal – and functioning normally again, that you can just put a normal thing back on it. It doesn't have mm. to have that $200 or $300 package on it to put for the rest of its life. 
once yeah. you get it normal and functioning again, um, well, you may well, be able to just. I think I think the thing with that as well, you know, and again, it's something we've spoke about all the time is, you know, go back 20 years when everything had a season and then would have its shoes off, chucked out in the field for a few months and it would come back in. You know, the green reset button, as they used to call it, that used to fix all those problems and then it would come back into work with great feet again in a lot of cases. Yeah, and that the other thing with harness racing and thoroughbred racing too that 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 you know you reminded me about that is that harness racing forty years ago we they had three months off they didn't race for three months. Mm. So now everything's so competitive with the betting, you know, the betting dollar and everybody wants to they they just race horses a lot more than what they used to, and horses don't get a break. Or any anywhere near as many breaks, whether they be thoroughbred racing horses or standard bred racing horses, they don't get a break like they used to. That to, to be productive and earn money, they tend to stay in work a lot longer than they used to. Mm. So, so they don't get that seasonal break like they used to. No, no, no. I I think that's very true in pretty much every discipline in the in in the horse world now um so just just to finish up on you know every farrier podcast you listen to out there or any podcast you listen to they tend to have like questions sort of the same quick fire questions um at the end and i've just started to put together a few of these sort of questions i want to ask any guests coming on this podcast um because majority of them being farriers um at the end of it now the first question obviously you live in australia where you alluded to earlier uh, obviously in the in great britain in the uk we've got the farriers registration you know we you've got to be uh regulated to be a farrier and practice farrier in this country you guys don't as well pretty much everyone else in the world does doesn't have it if you were to regulate farriers in Australia tomorrow, what do you think the impact would be? If you introduce regulation? Mm. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think you could, personally, because Australia's... I don't... I don't know what the impact would be. I, I, I don't think it would be possible to ever introduce regulation to Australia because of the because of the um, the vast distances that we have and the amount of you know. I mean, how do you tell a guy on a station? Yeah, I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it would work, but if, if, I, if I could think of one benefit of having regulation would be to uh, to get a better standard of farriery across the board in Australia and. And um, people with horses would understand, um, you know, there'd be be more um, recognition, I think, of of farriers' skills that that did have some some sort of training and qualification. Mm -hmm. Um, At the moment, there's there's a lot of um, confusion, would be the right word, confusion between people who claim to have something and and don't have anything. And... Mm -hmm. You know, guys that have gone and done a lot more training, and you know, got qualifications in the worst for company of farriers, and 
And when I say the worshipful company of pharaohs, I think it's the gold standard. If you go anywhere around the world, um, you know, there's a lot of pharaohs in England that I've, are friends of mine, and I don't say this uh, out of spite or anything, but I don't think a lot of the a lot of you guys in England really appreciate what you've got, and I'm certain I'm certain that um, you know it's it's the best it's it's the gold standard from a lot of farriers' points of view around the world, and that's why that's why guys that don't really need to have it we don't we don't need to have a worshipful company qualification to shoe horses, but yet we still seek that um, recognition if you know what mm. I mean, and and we we come to England. And, and guys go uh, spend a lot of money and go out of their way to get that qualification because we hold it in such high esteem. And mm. you know, if you had the regulation in Australia, that if there was any one thing, it would be it would be that you know people would probably recognise it and not take it for granted. Well, I mean, I think, and again, you know, the one thing over here is is having to go through this process and having to get the qualifications to get registered in this country. You know. The, the there is i mean don't get me wrong there's probably some unregistered farriers out there i think it depends what part of the country you go to some have more than the others but listen again listening to one of brian's podcasts the other day with chad and chad said the trouble is bad farriers don't unless you go for certification or go out and compete you don't know you're bad there's no no one out there no, there's no bad farrier out there who actually knows he's a bad farrier he thinks he's a good farrier, no, or she's right. a good farrier, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things, isn't it? I think that's the, and I, I think having kind of like uh, bona fide qualifications is probably more important than actually having a register, personally. But that's you yeah. Know, it's one one thing that we were talking about yesterday, me and another cap, another farrier colleague of mine, is that you know. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, but you know, don't know what you don't know. But um, you see a lot of people, and you see it in every country. It's not restricted to Australia or England or America or anywhere. Um, you see a lot of people who who can talk the talk. They, you know, or they they might be able to tell all these people who know nothing about horses what they think they should do or be able to take x-rays and do all them sort of things and analyze um analyze an x-ray on the computer and, and social media hasn't helped us at all with that yet no. they don't know how to shoe a horse because you know, they don't no. know how to balance a horse or do those things and that and that's what that's what regulation helps us do i think it, mm. it, it forces us to it forces people to be better at their job because yeah. they're going comparing themselves to other farriers and they're looking at a standard yeah exactly Exactly. I mean, and, and the other thing, I, again, I was talking to students today and I said, like, you know, you're at college, you know, we're shoeing, there's a line of horses there and they've all had their feet trimmed by different people. Where else do you ever get chance just to go and just pick up any foot at random, just look down it and see how, what they're seeing? Because what we always see isn't necessarily right, you know? It's just more... F it's just more experience, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And you know, and not only that, you're rubbing shoulders with other other like-minded people that are that are keen to learn. And they, and you know, that, that's what happens. It's a very contest. You know, a lot of people yeah, can absolutely. very contest, but 
how often do you get to go to a place and, and have, you know, 50 or 60 people from around the world that are the best farriers in the country and, you know, one, it's a very tight-knit little community worldwide mm-hmm. of the top farriers that I've seen, you know, and that it's just always evolving and getting better and I think even, you know, people that have to agree that the standard of, of young farriers coming through going to contests now are just phenomenal, you know. Mm. I mean, oh, I of some of the jobs I see. Yeah, and, he, and it's going up and up and up. It's unbelievable. Um, right, so let's move on then. So in your farrier lifetime, what's some of the biggest evolutions you've seen, you know, be it tools, technology? Oh, for sure, the two two game changers, if you ask me, is, is aluminium race plates. Yeah. That's... that's that's probably like, like I said before, we're not putting these horrible old Tedco plates or little steel shoes on anymore. We're putting pieces of pieces of aluminium on that are aircraft, like you know, aircraft aluminium and things like that. And it's instead of having to put shoes on, take them off, and compromising the horse's hoof capsule, we just can put those shoes on and and leave them on. And the other the other game changer is um, the modern materials that we have, like the uh, polyurethane and um, the glue um, and the gold impression materials that we use now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I, I think I think they've been, and, and like I said before, they aren't an everyday thing. They're a low commodity item as you come as a farrier. Hopefully, you never have to use them. But when you do have a problem, they're there to help you, and and all they do is help help you get that horse's foot back to a normal functional thing. Yeah. And, and you're pretty slick at gluing them on as well, because I've witnessed that. Hi again? I said you're pretty slick at gluing them on, because I've seen you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah gluing. Uh, that's not something I like to do, but if, if you have to do it, you can. I said I learned stuff. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. <laughs> actually you talk about that 35 years ago my grandfather had a horse from new zealand and we didn't know what was wrong with him and, and that was the first time i ever seen anybody he actually got a product from england he 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 got it he bought it from england and put it in his foot and it was the first time i'd ever seen anyone fill a horse's foot up with some type of um that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone use anything in a horse's foot. It turned out to be silicon, right? Which we all know nowhere near as good in their foot as the as the modern stuff that we got, like the the two part mix, you know, the sole impression stuff that we have, and the dental impression material. It's just it's just a game changer. Those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, lastly, just to finish on. This is kind of the reflective question. If you look back over your career, what if you could go back and do it again, what's the two things you would change? What would I change? If I had the opportunity if, if, to now, I would... I see. If at, all, if at all, because you might have got it right first time. No, I don't think I did. Um, I would have spent a lot more time in England as a younger person and... and um, Stayed with stayed with David Gully a lot longer than what I did. Unfortunately, I had a young family, and and I wasn't able to 
stay in England long enough, I would have I would have loved to have been able to when I was a bit younger and keener to go to a lot more farrier competitions and and uh, things in England. I didn't. That that's the one thing I would have changed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. Yeah. I was going to say, do, do we do we do we need you over here? Yeah, I would I would have loved to have done that. But I mean, you know, things change in life. You don't you don't often get an opportunity. Like I said, I had a young family, so couldn't yeah. be in two places at once. Yeah, I mean, so, I must. That, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and you came back and they let you back in, so that's good. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, but um, it, that reminds me. Actually, I must go and see David, but um. I want to chat to him about something. Um, so, yeah, well, thank you very much for your time, Dean. It's always a pleasure to chat. I know we do it several times a week anyway. Um, yeah, no, that's good. It's good to talk about something you like. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, and it is is something I do know, you know, a, a damn sight. Well, you know a hell of a lot about, and it's something you're very passionate in, and it's a whole, you know, with you, it's a lifetime of being around it, you know, from a from a driver to a trainer to a farrier, you know. So you you know more than most. Well, certainly one thing that by driving him, you understand how they go. That's yeah. hard for a lot of guys, and you see with any discipline, really, um, if you don't. Like anything, if you don't understand the discipline, it's hard yeah. to um, apply the theories. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish that there, Dean. No worries, Dean. Thanks for having me.